stay on top of the latest business and investment trends in EdTech. In this podcast, your host, Todd Hand, talks with thought leaders, executives, and investors to explore the latest in the education and technology space. Welcome to EdTech Leader Interviews. Joining me is Harsh Patel. Harsh, welcome. Thanks, Todd, for having me. Okay, you've had a busy six months. Before we get into that, I need to dig into your background because you have a really eclectic background. It wasn't <laughs> like, like six or seven years ago, you were a school teacher. So let, let's start with how does a biomedical grad get into boot camps? Oh, man. That's going to be quite the story. So let's see. We'll start the story at when, when, I, when I graduated with a biomedical engineering degree. So after I graduated, uh, my plan was to go to med school. And I had been accepted to med school and everything, done the whole process. And then there is a company or, or, a, or a nonprofit called Teach for America that reached out and said, hey, you should really think about teaching. And I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to be a teacher. I mean, now that, I'm, now that I've got this med school thing on lockdown. Let's see what this is all about. Yeah. And we know them well. They're a really well-respected organization. Yeah, for sure. And and for a very good reason too. I'm a big fan. So once they reached out and I I kind of, you know, I felt it at ease knowing like, okay, I'm I'm, going to be in med school like three months down the line. Let's see what Teach for America has to say. And I was basically just, I I, I met with a recruiter and I, I fell in love instantly. Because I'd always wanted to teach. I just thought that I would be this, you know, I would teach at the end of my career rather than at the beginning. And they and probably don't have many biomedical grads. Definitely. Yeah. And so, I mean, in the, as, as a middle, middle school teacher, there's not that many biomedical engineering grads that go into being a middle school teacher. And so I had this, I had this skill set and also this desire to teach. And here's Teach for America saying, hey, you can step into a classroom in a matter of months. And I thought, this is great. Sign me up. And then they said that you get paid to do it. And I was like, wow, that's, <laughs> this, is, this is better than what I could imagine. And then they also told me that the med school that I had gotten into would defer my acceptance for two years. So I was like, okay, look, there's no risk here. And this, is, this sounds like something really fun and something that I can actually apply my skills to a group of, of, of students that typically wouldn't get it otherwise. And what so grades I, were you teaching? I taught fifth grade and eighth grade. Did you love so, it? I did. As any first year teacher knows, the first year is like is a love hate relationship. It was, it it still is to this day the hardest I've worked in my entire life. What did you like better, fifth or eighth grade? I'd say eighth, mainly because the uh, it had to do with the students at the school. When I stepped into the fifth grade classroom, all the teachers around me said, "Oh boy, you better get ready." Those fifth graders. They'd been giving teachers a hard time ever since they were in first grade because it's the same group of kids that right. go through first grade, second. And I was like, all right, bring it on. And, uh, and then fortunately, the principal asked me to teach eighth grade the following year at the same school. And all the teachers around me were saying, oh, my God, you're getting the best group of kids that's gone through the school. So I think I, I really liked eighth grade because of that. I went from <laughs> the, the toughest group of kids to, to an easier set of kids. And I think that's what I liked about it the most. It's better to go that way than the other direction. Exactly. So I felt pretty prepared. And, and the second year was a lot more natural than, than the first, which is why I think I liked eighth grade. So around summer of 2012, you had already been part of, and you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation, Portfolio? That's right. It was a company where we built software for teachers. 
So one of the biggest problems I had in the classroom was contacting students' parents. We were in, the, in a predominantly not very affluent neighborhood at all in South Chicago. And at that time, parents didn't have smartphones and they also didn't have voice minutes, but they, but they definitely had text messaging. And, you know, I had 64 students and contacting all 64 sets of parents was difficult on a nightly basis. Even contacting five, 10 of them was difficult on a nightly basis. Right. Um, and so we built some software that allows you to manage all that text message communication on a web app. And that's what portfolio was. And so and around this time, you were then starting up MakerSquare. That's right. So the story with portfolio is that we had raised some funding and hired a team of developers and I was managing that team of developers, uh, but I'd, I didn't know how to write uh, web software myself. And so I found myself learning nights and weekends, trying to build myself a curriculum for basically becoming a software engineer. And and after, after I taught myself, one of my other friends that lives in Austin at the time asked me if, if there's any courses that I'd recommend for someone who wants to become a software engineer. And I was like, well, I don't really know, but I just did it myself. And I've, I've gone through this teaching thing. Like, I think I know how to build a curriculum. And he was like, why don't we start a school for this in Austin, Texas? And I'd always wanted to move to Austin. So I just said, you know what? Yeah, why not? Let's do it. So we went down there and started a company called MakerSquare, which is one of the early code schools. We started late 2012, early 2013, which is when several other popular code schools got started. So that, that's kind of the, I guess, two-minute version of uh, how I got into code schools from biomedical engineering. And then you had a successful exit, your, your first, and we'll get to the second one in a second, but that MakerSquare was acquired by Hack Reactor. That's right. And, and so, tell me about that. Tell me about that transition. Sure. So, about so MakerSquare took off pretty quick. Um, we were bootstrapped. We 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 funded everything through student tuition, revenue, and uh, it became a, a a self standing, self sustaining company pretty quickly. And we got to like a million million and a half in revenue pretty quick. And about uh, halfway, let's say about, about a year in, uh, we got a call and an email from the White House uh, under the Obama administration at the time. And they were bringing together um, a bunch of code schools because they had, they had heard that uh, graduates of these programs were, were getting employed very quickly at high, high paying salaries. And the administration was interested in putting veterans to work in high tech fields. And so they, they got a group of us together, brought us to the White House and did a round table to educate them on, on how we do it, how we're different from them, traditional post-secondary education um, and how we might be able to help veterans uh, go through the courses and stuff. And one of the schools that was there was Hack Reactor. And from the get-go, all of our principles were aligned. We were, we were both just very focused on good, high-quality education. We had a high entrance bar. We weren't just bringing anyone who wanted to, who had the money, accepting them into the course. We were truly figuring out and vetting whether or not they were ready for the course and whether or not they, they would be successful in the course. And believe it or not, we were, I think we were the only two schools really doing that at the time. And uh, Hack Rector started in San Francisco. And we 
uh, expanded to San Francisco as well. And when we did that, we just started overlapping with Hack Reactor a lot more. And around the same time was the first wave of um, for-profit education institutions that were trying to get into the code school business. And they were going around wanting to acquire schools. And one of them approached us, gave us an offer. And we said, we're not really excited to sell to these folks, but maybe if Hack Reactor can, can match or make the offer better, we'd love to team up with Hack Reactor rather than one of the for-profit schools. So that's, that's, that's what we did. And at the time, and I think since then, has Hack Reactor didn't take institutional investment, right? That's right. Hack Reactor was also bootstrapped. So you joined in 2014 and then had an exit this summer. What was the growth like in that four years? Oh, it was great. We grew like 4X in the year after the sale to Hack Reactor. And I think we, t- we took things from, I want to say like six to eight million in revenue all the way up to 20 and some change in revenue over the course of a couple of years. And what do you attribute that growth to? And how did you avoid the problems that other boot camps have experienced in the last one or two years? So from the get-go, we were financially conscious. And we had created a model that was financially sustainable, self-sustaining, without requiring outside capital. And for the longest time, that felt like a crutch. Because here, here were all these other schools that were raising lots of money. And to us, it just didn't make sense how they were making the actual fundamental business model work to be sustainable long-term. And then over time, we started to see that those same schools ended up closing their doors because they couldn't find a sustainable model. So, you know, what we thought was a crutch at the time became our, our, I think our strongest asset. Um, We had just by, by nature, we had created a sustainable organization, a sustainable model. And and that's what propelled us further than I think most other consumer facing code schools. Last year, you started the council on integrity and results reporting. What is that? That is a, uh, an organization of other code schools that have gotten together and said, look, everyone's touting all these crazy employment figures and not everyone's calculating it the same way. And to be totally frank, there's a couple players in the industry that are misleading the public about their employment numbers post-graduation. They're, they're removing students from being counted for very, what we believe very reasonable things. And so we said, let's get together. Let's create a similar standard that we can all follow that we can get audited by an independent third party. And let's make sure that all of us together are gonna be reporting stats in the same way, in, in, the, in a very stringent way that helps prospective students make a well-informed decision on, on what school they wanna to go to. And how is that going? It's going pretty well. We've grown that membership from just a handful to I think we're in the 20s now of organizations that have, that have committed to signing on to this standard. And it's gone from, it's its own self-sustaining organization now. It has its own CEO that's funded by its own revenue, which is membership dues that we pay into SIR. So now SIR is a, is a totally third party entity that is helping with, with keeping multiple code schools honest about how they're reporting outcomes. Where do you think the coding school boot camps are heading over the next 12 to 24 months? 
I think there's still a little bit of more of consolidation that we might see in the space where groups will get together or bigger groups will buy the smaller groups. But I do think there's still going to be some sustained growth. I think there's right now the biggest growth area we've seen is in, in software engineering. And I think there's a little bit more growth left in software engineering to service the number of students that or the, the demand for software engineers that exist in the market. And so I think over the next 12 to 24 months, we'll see a little bit more of consolidation and also growth for the groups that are doing a good job. You've had a busy spring and summer and the deal was just announced that Galvanized bought Hack Reactor. That is such a big win for you and your team. What does this mean for all of the students at Hack Reactor and, and what will this new entity uh, look like? Yeah, it's a good question. To be totally honest, a lot of this was driven by what it's going to mean for students at Hack Reactor. We had looked uh, at Galvanize from afar. So a little bit background on Galvanize. They have, they have, they have uh, memberships where companies will come work from uh, Galvanize offices. And this is a vibrant tech community when you walk into a Galvanize building. You'll see big Fortune 100 companies who have outposts inside of Galvanize all the way to mid-sized startups, all the way down to tiny little startups and everything in between. Those are all the people that want to hire our graduates. And so um, we'd always looked at Galvanize from afar thinking, man, we'll, we will create that type of employer ecosystem one day as well. And, and with Galvanize, we get to do that pretty much overnight. So all the Hack Reactor students, for the, for the campuses where, we where there's a Galvanize and Hack Reactor, all those Hack Reactor students will now be able to take the program surrounded, literally surrounded by companies that are interested in hiring them. So that's one of the biggest, biggest wins that drove us to, to do this transaction. Do you serve students all across the globe? We do. We have a live remote program. Um, it, it was the first of its kind all the way back in 2014. And it's the biggest of its kind. It, that program in itself is bigger than probably 70, 80% of code schools, in-person code schools that exist and that services students all across the globe. We've had folks in in Asia, in Europe, in the Middle East, Africa, South America, literally everywhere that take that program. And it's a live online course that operates out off of uh, Pacific time. So even, even the students that joined us from the Middle East or Japan or Hong Kong or China all changed their schedules for three months to be on Pacific time. So they'll wake up in the middle of the night, they'll go to bed in the late afternoon, and uh, study alongside other students from all over the world. It's a, it's a phenomenal program, but obviously I'm biased. Oh, that's great. That's great. Okay, so what's next? And after your, your second exit, what's next for you? Are you finally going back to medical school? <laughs> you know, I've thought about it, believe it or not. Because um, I, I a, my, 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 a lot of my family members and friends are, are in the healthcare field. And I've always said that there's... There's three industries that I want to make an impact on in my life, and that's education, healthcare, and personal finances. And so I think there's still, I still got some excitement uh, for education that I'm, that I'm hoping to uh, help propel into what I'm doing at Galvanize now. But I do think at some point, eventually, 
I'll get the I'll get the bug again and 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 hopefully start some successful companies in healthcare and finance. How about medicine boot camps? I've thought about it. I don't think the world's ready for it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got my, my brother's a doctor who, who who went through medical school. Lots of friends that went through medical school. I think there's a lot of room for efficiency in medical school. If you talk to doctors, you don't see that they're not using everything they learned in four years on the job. They're definitely still using a, uh, a much of it, but just not everything. And there's a there's an opportunity to condense that. But but I think we're a little ways from that. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, we'll leave on this last question. Lessons for entrepreneurs that are listening to this that are looking for buyers, looking for exits. What would you tell them? Looking for buyers and exits. What do you wish you knew then that you know now? So I'll start with something that I think we did right, and then I'll go to something that I think if I were to have a do-over, I'd do it differently. One of the things we did right was... I don't believe we made any enemies in the industry. I think even with folks we disagreed with, we stayed positive and encouraging towards. Sometimes you'll see folks talk bad about others in their industry, and and I just don't think we've ever done that. And I think that worked in our favor because ultimately you're going to end up working with with someone in your industry at some point, or you're going to end up buying them, or they're going to end up buying you. There's going to be some sort of collaboration that happens, and you always want to be making sure that you're respectful uh, to everyone that's, that, that's playing around you. We have an expression on our team that you're always interviewing. And sometimes yeah. you're interviewing for something that is going to happen to you four and five years down the road. I couldn't agree with that more. What would you do differently? I think we'd raise capital. And this is something I didn't realize was going to be a value add about raising capital. But when you've got institutional folks that have invested into your company, they are also incentivized to find you acquirers. And so you, you now have multiple folks that are, that are looking for exits for their investment, not just you yourself looking for an exit for your own company. So that's, that's one thing I would, I would do differently, which is vet potential investors. And, and if you're not thinking about taking investment, I would actually encourage you to do so but from the lens that get the right, right investors that are going to help you exit. They can be positive agents and advocates for your company. Mm-hmm. They may have meetings that you wouldn't be able to have at all where they can talk about their investment and, and realize that there's an opportunity for a company to, to, uh, to, to buy you in a way that you just wouldn't realize because you're so, you're, you're so deep into running your business correctly. That's really smart. Harsh, Great catching up with you. And again, congratulations. You too, Todd. Thanks a lot. Subscribe and share the podcast with industry colleagues and stay current on the latest business and investment trends in EdTech. For more podcast episodes, go to www.edtechleaderinterviews.com. Join us next time on EdTech Leader Interviews with Todd Hand. Todd Hand.